0: the question is this, what what does it fundamentally look like to have faith? Abraham is spoken of, uh, he's he's set up as an example uh, in the Old Testament as a man of faith, he is spoken of in the New Testament as the father and a hero of the faith. What does it fundamentally look like to have faith? Well for you or I, is faith so much of a private thing that faith really ought to be invisible when a person has it. It's too private uh, and personal and precious to share. Uh, and, it's a, and it's an internal thing, more of a sensation or an opinion. Well, I think you probably know by now where I stand on that. I don't think so. Should instead faith manifest itself? But if so, where does faith show up? What, what, what's it going to look like? Uh, is faith a thing that shows up in your mood So that the person of faith is more joyful and less anxious than others. Or at least hopefully more joyful and less anxious than the person of faith would have been without that faith. Is faith detectable but more difficult to describe? More like an aura or a demeanour? Something that's uh, hard to put your finger on but a a kind of attractive quality uh, that you can kind of detect in a person. Is faith busy and hard-working? Or is the strongest faith so assured that it lends itself almost uh, to negligence because there's there's no need? What is there to work for if it's all already promised? Well, these questions and more won't necessarily be answered today. Uh, But in Genesis uh, chapter 13 and 14, we do see some of these options represented in the life of Abram, And some of them even seem to contradict one another. Uh, But all of this reminds us that whatever it is that faith might look like in in a certain circumstance or whatever a particular individual's faith might look like in them, the most essential quality of faith is who or what your faith is in. Uh, maybe you remember from our gospel reading today in Luke, Jesus said, uh, the people said to Jesus, uh, give us more faith. And Jesus said, more or less, more is not what you need. Faith as small as a mustard seed can do incredible things because it's not the size of your faith, it is who your faith is in that makes the difference. Is your trust... Resting on a thing that can support its weight. Is the object of your faith actually dependable for the long haul in thick and thin, in wealth and poverty and in life and death? Because only faith in God, in God, can deliver all those things. God gives clear expectations. He makes promises and he keeps them. And best of all, his love and his faithfulness are unconditional. We don't need to achieve them. He gives willingly and freely. Uh, There's three episodes in Genesis chapters 13 and 14. So to uh, recap and give a sketch of, of what we've read and what's coming. In chapter 13, Abram and his nephew Lot part ways. Lot chooses to move away into the fertile land of his own choosing while Abram stays in the promised land of Canaan that God has chosen for him. In the first half of chapter 14, Abram rescues Lot when he and his family get caught in the crossfire of feuding kings and they get carried away as the spoils of war. And then at the end of chapter 14, the bit we haven't read yet, but we will soon, we meet a mysterious man named Melchizedek. He rocks up kind of out of the blue. Uh, In 2,000 years before Christ, he is a distinctly Christ-like figure. He's a king who is also a priest. He serves Abram a meal of bread and wine. And he receives the first recorded tithe. Uh, Abram pays him 10% of his wealth. And then we don't hear from him again. Well, except for two more references, which I'll come to later on in the Bible. But he is a mysterious figure. If you are one of those people who I mentioned before, who at some point in your life has decided, oh, I'm going to try to read the Bible cover to cover. Um, then I, I do remember the time that I, was, that I tried this and failed, but got to Genesis chapter 14 and was like, Melchizedek, what a cool name. Why haven't I heard of him? Where did this guy come from and where does he disappear to? He is a guy who, as you read the story, captures your imagination. And that's not just true for the modern reader. It was true for the Jewish people. Uh, the Jewish people, with without very much, really any more information about the man, were captivated by this figure, uh, and uh, and and the theme comes up only two more times, but but carries a fair bit of weight uh, in the end. So we'll get to that, but um, first let's go back to chapter thirteen when Abram and Lot separate. And remember, we're asking this question: What does faith look like? Uh, what is the essence of faith? What what does what's its appearance in a person? And if we could condense this episode from chapter 13, where Abram and Lot separate, I would say something like this, in this instance. Faith means doing surprisingly little, almost nothing. Faith uh, means doing almost nothing. Last week, we were introduced to the character of Abram. Uh, his name is changed to Abraham in chapter 17, I said before. Now, this is, this is very early human history. It's not just early in the Bible. This is, uh, this is ancient, ancient stuff. Uh, this is before things like the nation of Israel or the Hebrew people even. Uh, this is before temples and priests and an organized religion. It's before the scriptures were written, long before. Between Adam at creation and Abram, which we get to, who we get to in about chapter 11, uh, we, um, we see a general scattering of people across the earth. That's partly God's design and partly their judgment as well because, uh, because people aren't getting along. Uh, but we also see a more general moral and spiritual decline. People are turning away from God. People are doing as they see fit. And we learn that even Abram's people didn't worship God. We get told that later on in the book of Joshua. Abram's people worshipped idols in the first instance. And in chapter 12, we're told that God called out to Abraham and said to him, Leave your family and leave your land and, by implication, leave those gods and follow me. And God promises that he would give Abram uh, offspring and a land and a blessing. Uh, that would extend to all the peoples of earth through him. God spoke to Abraham. This blessing, by the way, the New Testament, calls the gospel. Now, we often think of the gospel uh, as being uh, the good news specifically of Jesus. And it's difficult for us to our modern ears to think much further back past the Jesus stuff because that, that is so, so fundamental. And I wouldn't for a moment undermine that. Uh, But in the the book of Galatians, Paul speaks about uh, this as the gospel. And he says, ultimately, earlier in chapter um, 3, that it's the gospel. But then he says this at the end of Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Abram follows God who leads him to the land of Canaan, Uh, where God then reconfirms uh, his promise, saying, this is the land, this land that you're now in, called Canaan for now, is your land. Uh, What I didn't really address last week was that Abram's uh, travelling with his nephew, Lot. Um, And we don't know much about Abram and Lot's actual relationship, but what becomes clear in chapter 13 is that Abram at least uh, feels a huge amount of duty towards his nephew. There is a family kinship bond but verses 5 to 7 paint the picture that their, their combined herds are becoming too cumbersome to live together in harmony, in close quarters, and that there's, there's arguments and disputes arising, at least not necessarily between Abram and Lot themselves, but their workers are starting to fight among themselves and against each other. So Abram decides they should part ways. But when you read what he says, the words that are behind me, uh, you can see that uh, Abram doesn't give up on his duty to family. Even though he's saying uh, we should separate, uh, he's doing so in love. It says, Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, I'll go to the right. If you take the right, I'll go to the left. First of all, uh, just notice in, in his words that Abram's motivation is actually family unity. He says, let there be no strife. Uh, and it's wise, in fact, it's, a, it's the wisdom of Abram, as much as his faith, uh, to recognise that unity isn't always best achieved by living each, in each other's pockets. The New Testament tells uh, a story in the book of Acts, Uh, This is in the uh, the decades immediately after Christ has died and risen and ascended into heaven. The church is growing and missionary efforts are expanding around the known world. And Paul and Barnabas are two of the heroes of this effort. And in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas, who've been doing missionary work together side by side, have an argument about whether or not uh, a particular young worker, Mark, uh, was fit to go with them. Barnabas, the encourager, thinks Mark should come. Paul thought not, uh, because Mark had previously deserted them. And so they decide to part ways. Barnabas taking Mark and Paul choosing a new partner in Silas. And thus, ultimately, their work is doubled through a purposeful parting of the ways. I've spoken about this before, but uh, is the existence... Of different denominations of Christianity, is that a shame or a strength? Now, my inclination from hearing other people speak uh, is that more often than not people think it's a shame and will describe it that way. Uh, and look, it's easy enough to highlight the differences between different denominations and churches as proof of disunity. Why can't they get along? But you've heard and been a part today of us praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ and and wanting the success of other churches in town. The difference between denominations, uh, in my experience, is not a mark of disunity. Different churches celebrate the success of different churches. And although here at EPC we're able to celebrate a reasonably diverse family within our walls... You multiply that diversity of the people of God when you consider the people who make up all the varying churches in town and other churches, of course, uh, in nations across the seas. Uh, Our differences are important enough to make working in the same space challenging. But when we let each other be each other, we are actually freed up to pursue God's work with more flexibility, uh, more nimbleness than if we had to iron out every minor disagreement each time we face it. I'm very pleased, for example, for the Uniting Church to be the Uniting Church and the Anglican Church to be the Anglican Church and Calvary to do what Calvary does Uh, because uh, together we are reaching, not at the same time and not in the same building, but together, cumulatively, we are able to reach uh, the whole of our town. But notice, uh, just to come back now into Genesis chapter 13, notice what Abram sacrifices. Uh, I said that faith in this instance is, is kind of doing nothing. Uh, he gives Lot first dibs on all the land that they've passed through. And that proves, doesn't it, that, that Abram's to his devotion to his family is his real motivation for parting ways. It's a painful parting, uh, as painful as it must have been. Uh, But with his actions, he shows that he would rather lose on a deal than lose his family. He doesn't negotiate. He doesn't propose a win-win or a win-win-win or anything like that. He doesn't stand on his seniority in the family. He simply stands aside. He's uh, proactively passive, if you could even put it that way. Uh, He says, "You you choose first and I will accept that. Now, I would say that behind this is a faith very like the faith that Jesus taught when he said that we should pray to God, your will be done. We, when we pray these words daily, if you do so, uh, are putting ourselves in his hands. In fact, reminding ourselves that we are in his hands. Uh, and, uh, And Abram is sort of doing that as well. God's will will be done here. I can step aside and let it happen. That's what I mean by doing nothing. And that is actually really hard, isn't it? That's the sort of thing you can probably only pray yourself into. There's more than that too. Remember, Abram's not just giving Lot first pick of any land. He's not just giving him the better deal, materially speaking, but they are standing in the land that God has promised Abram and his offspring. And Abram doesn't do a single thing to preserve his own God-given right to the land. He leaves that entirely in God's hands. It's a bit like if you read the book of 1 Samuel, uh, which tells mostly the story of David before he becomes a king. He is promised as a boy and anointed as king that he will rule over the land. Then time and time again, when Saul, who is the king at the time, is messing things up, David has chances time and time again to righteously take the king, take the kingship away from Saul. But he doesn't. He waits. He, do, he is remarkably passive as he just lets time and God take his course and eventually, by God's hand, he receives what he's been promised. Abram gives Lot first dibs in full assurance that the sovereign Lord would do what he promised to do so it's worth then thinking about what is it that God has promised you because the way God spoke to Abram was unique right God isn't in the habit of whispering to us things like you know this one this is the land or the house that I want you to buy and I'm going to give it to you or this is the person that you should marry or this is how many children you will have or or even promising that you will have children that, that, isn't, that isn't God's everyday practice with us as individuals. We are not Abraham, but Abraham is our father. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what's been promised? You can make a pretty good list, but I'm just going to use the word promise uh, and focus on one thing. This is uh, the first... Uh, sermon after, at Pentecost, uh, when the Apostle Peter, after Jesus has uh, ascended back into heaven, he's speaking to the people. He tells them that you are the ones, uh, the Jewish people gathered, he says, you are the ones who crucified your Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And it says they're cut to the heart and they say, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And another time, uh, you you might have heard uh, the words of Jesus being taught uh, where he's talking about prayer and he says, uh, ask anything you want of our Father and he will give it to you. Anything you ask for in my name, he will give to you. Um, but particularly, he highlights uh, in that sentence, um, "Our Father will not withhold the Holy Spirit from you if you ask for Him." So Abram, and, and so uh, the Holy Spirit is not a thing that you can uh, that you can gain through your effort or your work. Uh, it is uh, a thing; He is a person uh, that God has promised uh, to dwell inside you. What? What a gift. What a promise. That is the sort of thing that, uh, that frees us up to actually be weirdly passive people. Almost shockingly negligent to say, man, God has given me everything and more that I could ever need. There's nothing left to work for. What a joy. What a privilege. What an honor. Abram acts with faith in God's promise, uh, which in this instance merely bears, means, sorry, means barely acting at all. And at the end of chapter 13, God reconfirms his promise to Abram that he will give him and his offspring that land that he's left with forever. But faith isn't all about doing nothing, far from it. Uh, Faith also means fighting. Almost the opposite, isn't it? Uh, a sort of gritty, dangerous, getting your hands dirty kind of faith. Uh, chapter 14 uh, tells us this, uh, when uh, when Abram rescues Lot. Uh, when Lot chooses his land, uh, Lot chooses it by appearances. Uh, it's flat and fertile and green, but he doesn't take into account God's promise. Uh, also, in verse 13 of chapter 14, uh, we discover that Sodom... Uh, the, the place where he's particularly chosen to dwell, uh, is full of people who are wicked and great sinners against the Lord. We'll get to that uh, in a few more weeks. But in chapter 14, uh, we find that uh, the people of Sodom don't just rebel against God. Uh, them and their allies rebel also against the kings who rule over them, who have done for something like 12 years. And in our reading, we learn that this does not go well for them. Things do not pan out. In all of this, uh, the the five kings that uh, the king of Sodom and his buddies have have rebelled against, the five kings come out against them and they crush them and they run away uh, with the people, taking prisoners and spoils and in all of this, Lot and his family as well. Uh, There's an escapee uh, who runs to Abram and tells him what's happened. Uh, And verse 14 of chapter 14 is, is very interesting. This is after Abram's heard what's happened. It says, when Abram heard, this is behind me, that his kinsman Lot, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. There is a lot going on, actually, in that verse, in that one verse. First of all, Abram has trained men. Remember, Abram's not a king or a warrior. He's a farmer. So these trained men are presumably farmhands who are also trained to fight, or at least of age. The fact that Abram has men trained for battle probably tells us something about the dangers of the time and place uh, that he dwelt in. And so he's not really, uh, he's not uh, only a passive figure. Uh, He will fight when he needs to. Second, it says there's 318 of them. This is just the trained men. That's a lot of people uh, to be uh, a part of Abram's people. And remember, Abram doesn't have a single son or daughter. But it does say that they're born in his house. And they had a pretty broad idea of family. These were Abram's people, not by blood, but they were his. And, and they were happy, presumably, to be his. There, there, was, a, there was a relationship and a connection. Now, one of the glaring things about Abram is that God has promised him a family and a nation, yet Abram remains despondent that he's got no children of his own. But we see here more than the beginnings of God keeping his promise to Abram. No son of his own, but his household is huge. There's 318 trained men born in his house, let alone all the rest. The blessing has well and truly begun. And finally, one other thing to point out in this verse. Although 318 is a lot of trained men, uh, when you sort of zero in on Abram and what that must mean for his household and his wealth and his blessing, it's not very many men to take to war against the combined armies of four kings, is it? Not many at all. But what Abram doesn't have in numbers, he makes up for with strategy and with the help of God. Abram himself goes into battle. It says uh, and he springs on them in the cover of darkness and they defeat the kings and when the kings and their men run abram and his men abram and his men don't rest they follow and chase them away they pursue them now that's that's aggression isn't it and what's more abram rescues lot and all his possessions and his people and he brings them home well if faith sometimes means doing nothing and merely trusting god Sometimes it also means fighting, looking danger in the eye, applying your own God-given wisdom and getting your hands dirty in pursuit of justice. Now it still means thoroughly surrendering all your own passions and priorities and fears to God. But it means doing so to become God's chosen instrument. Remembering God's promise to Abram in chapter 12, God said these two things. He said to Abram, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. And God also said to Abram, him who dishonours you, I will curse. And God is using Abram to be an instrument of the very things that God has promised to Abram. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. And Abram has been blessed with 318 fighting men born in his household so that he might be a blessing in this instance to to rescue his own kinsman and family member Lot. And God had said to him, him who dishonours you I will curse. And God uses Abram as an instrument of God's own curse, using Abram to bring justice to the kings who dared, even accidentally, to dishonour his family. Now, this is, really, this is a really interesting progression from chapter 12, which we looked at last week. Remember, Pharaoh, in chapter 12, dishonoured Abram and his wife, and God directly cursed Pharaoh, as he said he would do to the nations who cursed Abram. Abram didn't do anything. He was, he was passive there, kind of uncomfortably so. But when these kings, a couple of chapters later, dishonour Lot, God uses Abram to bring about his curse. On these people there there is for abram a, a remarkable receptiveness uh to to god's leading but it's like it's far from it's far from fearful it's courageous and it's sacrificial and sacrifice so we've said faith is kind of passive almost frighteningly so uh faith also fights Uh, But we'll also look, uh, finally in this last section, how faith is sacrifice. Faith means sacrifice. It's all bound up in it. So let's read uh, this interesting passage I've I've told you about uh, at the end of chapter 14. The words are up here, but again, as usual, have it open on your lap. It's helpful. Genesis 14, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedoloma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, went out to meet Abram, at the valley of Shaver, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, "Blessed be Abram by God most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand." And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anah... Ashkel and Mamre take their share. Faith, we see here, uh, is bound up in, in sacrifice, among other things. Uh, we'll talk about Melchizedek in a moment, but first, uh, notice uh, as I talk about sacrifice, uh, it's almost a return to what we were talking about in the first place, of, of doing nothing. Uh, there's, this, uh, there's a lack of self-interest when it comes to faith. Uh, In in the first instance, remember when they're dividing the land, Lot doesn't, you know, there's no self-interest for Abram when he says, you take your pick first. And then even when Abram is, you know, has people prepared to shower gifts on him uh, and reward him for what he's done, again, there's no self-interest. In fact, there's only sacrifice. There's only one thing that Abram appears to receive in all of this, some bread and some wine. Abram does three things that are radically anti-self. He risks his life for his family. He refuses payment or accept, you know, the minimum wage for his men. And in fact, he even gives wealth away in there. And only one thing he receives is a gift of bread and wine from the mysterious Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who is he? What's he about? Where did he come from? That's kind of the point. The questions that go unanswered about him are kind of the point. Uh, His name means, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. King of Salem means king of peace. Salem, by the way, is almost certainly the shortened early version of what would later become Jerusalem, king of Jerusalem. He is a king, but it also says he is the priest of God Most High. And then in the and, and then it's, and then we never hear from him again, in all the narrative. He's extremely significant. He is honoured by Abram, but it's not clear that Abram owes him anything in particular. And he, we don't know where he came from, and we don't know where he goes. It's like. He just sort of exists in our imaginations eternally. And that's kind of the point. We only hear uh, him mentioned again one more time in the Old Testament. In Psalm 110, there's this prophetic line. It's a psalm of David, uh, and it says, You are a king forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's interesting because there's no known order of uh, priests, like, uh, there's no known priestly order of the Melchizedek sort of line. It's not like there's a priestly order of Melchizedek, but it's kind of like in the same sort of vein of mysterious, eternal, uh, kind of hard to grab, but, but just inexplicable majesty of Melchizedek, then there is a priest who will come of that same kind of ilk. Uh, and it gets picked up one more time in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, and you can read this for yourself because I've left a few bits out. But, uh, but uh, the author of Hebrews, uh, this is in the New Testament again after Christ, says this, For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. In verse 2, it points out what I've already pointed to, that his name means king of righteousness uh, and that king of Salem means king of peace. Uh, he is without father or mother or genealogy. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. And then sort of speaking now uh, of the time uh, knowing of Christ, he says, another priest arises in in this likeness of Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek. For it is witnessed of him, and this is the quote from that psalm I said before, uh, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the same way that Melchizedek's Melchizedek's mysterious origins have an almost eternal quality, Jesus really is eternal. In the same way Melchizedek was a king, Jesus is king. In the same way that he was king of righteousness, of peace and of Jerusalem, that is is—it's pretty hard to summarise Jesus any better. In the same way uh, that Melchizedek gives bread and wine, as a meal to satisfy someone who's been in the thick of battle. Except that Jesus Christ is uniquely Lord and the bread and wine that Jesus gives is, he says it's himself that he gives. We talk about faith, what does it look like? But I said at the start that the most important thing is, is the one who our faith is in. This last sort of episode in chapter 14 also uh, asks a similar question. Who do we make our alliance with? Because Lot, you can see through his Lot, in with the king of Sodom and these troublemaking kings who couldn't stand for themselves. Well, that is an alliance that Abram was not willing to step into. He wouldn't receive gifts from them. He wasn't going to entangle himself with these people who were anti-God and and rebellious at heart. Who are you willing to bargain with? Who are you willing to make your alliances with? Sort of gives an answer to who it is your faith is in. Is your faith in the world that promises wealth and every short-term pleasure? Or is your faith in the Lord who keeps us by his promise. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, it is vital. It is interesting. It's difficult to summarise. Uh, but it is so rich. And it speaks to what, what we must instinctively know about the nature of faith, that it, that at some level what, what we're asked to do is merely put our weight on you and let you do the things that you have promised to do. Help us uh, with that faith uh, to direct that faith to you and you alone so that we would ask nothing of the world but expect you alone uh, to feed us and enrich us and know that in so doing that you will give us even eternal life. Thank you for uh, the promise that you gave to Abraham that, you, uh, that flowed down to us as his children through Christ. Uh, we thank you for your blessings and we pray that we may uh, be a blessing uh, to the world. Amen.